This presentation is from Design Research 2020, Day 2. We, uh, coming up next, we have uh, Michelle and Ruth joining us. We'll just queue them up. Michelle and, and Ruth are two experienced and, and wonderful practitioners who have um, on many occasions been kind and generous enough to share their experiences with us over the years. Um, really happy to have them join us this afternoon. And as we queue up, thank you both for joining us. Fantastic. Thank you, Steve, for having us. And hello, everybody. Nice to see everyone. Nice to see our, our research family. Thank uh, you. Michelle and I'd like to start with an acknowledgement of the traditional custodians of the land which we are Zooming in from, the Ngunnawal people in Canberra. And Michelle, you're muted, Michelle. Sorry. Oh, I'm muted. Oh, no. How do I unmute? Yep, you're good now. I can, I can hear oh, you. Oh, good now. Fantastic. <laughs> Sorry, the Camaragal people of the Karingai tribe here in Northern Sydney. And we wish to acknowledge and respect their continuing culture and the contribution they make to the life of our cities and these regions. We also like to acknowledge and welcome any other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening in to our presentation today. Okay, so for those that we haven't met before, hi, my name is Ruth Ellison. I am, I've been working in the design and research fields for the past 18 years across government and the private sector, and I'm really passionate about how we grow good, sustainable design cultures. And hi everyone, I'm Michelle. I'm a user researcher as well as a PhD candidate. I've been working in UX for around eight years and I've been doing my PhD for just about as long as that. Um, my PhD focuses on the design of interactive equipment for stroke patient rehabilitation. Okay. Now, sorry, my internet keeps coming unstable to stop being on NBN. I'll try my best. <laughs> now, for those that have seen this, I'll never thought I'll see the day when we get to this type of headlines in our media. Now, funny enough, so I was seeing that headline. I went into my locals. I went into my local um, supermarket, Woolies, to try to find and get some baby wipes for my little one, as well as some paper towels. And this is what I saw. I went back again in the middle of the week and then again yesterday evening. And it was exactly the same like this. So what is actually going on over here? So these are cognitive biases in action. Now, I know we've touched on cognitive biases throughout the last two days, but for those that are listening for the first time, a cognitive bias is a mental shortcut. Cognitive biases are psychological tendencies that cause us to use a number of simplifying strategies and rules of thumbs to ease the burden of mentally processing information to make judgments and decisions. And that's because there's just so much information out there. So these rules of thumb or heuristics are often really useful in helping us to deal with complexity and ambiguity. But in many cases, cognitive bias can also lead to faulty judgments. So you're probably all aware of this book, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. If you haven't heard about it, please give it a read. It's a bit of a tough read as it's super dense, but really worth it as you'll learn a lot about how the brain works. So Kahneman proposes the idea of the brain having two systems, system one and system two. System one creates automatic responses to things we've encountered before in the world. It pays no attention to what it does not know. System two is the deliberate and logical part of the mind that deals with more difficult problems. It's by nature slow and where possible, we'll leave answering questions to system one. Now, using it is very effortful. However, we do tend to identify with system two as being who we are, as being our identity of someone who's intelligent and deep thinking. 
However, most of the time system one is in control, which is where our cognitive biases come into play. Okay, so back to the great toilet paper apocalypse of Australia. Uh, what are the cognitive biases in action? So there's, a num there's quite a number actually, but I just thought I'd call out three as an example. So the first one is social proof. That describes how when as individuals, we were unsure on how to behave, we often look around us for assurance. I must admit, I was just saying, I looked around and gone, oh, wow, okay, toilet paper's going. Maybe I need to get toilet paper. Um, and then I think this week it was mints at the shops. And Michelle, I think you were having... What was it? Yeah, eggs. problems running eggs in Sydney. Eggs in Sydney. So social proof. We're looking to run others to get you know, an idea how to behave. The second is FOMO, fear of missing out. You know, this is the fear we experience when we, that we thought we might miss out on a social occasion, a new experience, a, um, an investment or some kind of event. And we're definitely seeing that in action at the moment. And the final one is scarcity effect, where we place higher value on scarce objects and a lower value on those readily available. So early in the week, uh, I think it was tin lentils was probably was lots on the shelf. Now there's hardly anything. So now it's become you know, almost as valuable as toilet paper. I think probably not quite that close. So what does this all mean? That our cognitive biases lurk everywhere, but that's because we're all human. So we want our research to provide reliable input and to help our stakeholders make informed decisions about the service or products we are working on. Yet we're human and we and our stakeholders all susceptible to many cognitive biases that can affect the outcomes at any stage of our projects. So biases are unavoidable. But being a good research, researcher is about understanding our inherent biases of ourselves and of our stakeholders and how we can minimize those effects. Failing to account for our cognitive biases when communicating research findings can be very detrimental to a project. It can misinform the direction of a project or provide false confidence about decisions. Now, I think a lot of y'all would have seen this the last few days as well, Buster Benson, um, it's, it's 180 different cognitive biases. I really love this simple visualization of, of um, that, that exists out there. But what he covers about is the four different ways that biases can help us um, address the, the four key problems. The first one is that there's too much information out there, so we aggressively filter. We pick up the bits and pieces of information that we feel might be most useful to us. The second problem our brains are trying to address with is that the world is very confusing and we're only ever seeing bits and pieces of it. We need to make some sense of it to survive. So lack of meaning is confusing. So we fill in all the gaps that we, with stuff that we think we already know. The third problem we're trying to address is the need to act fast, less we lose our chances. So we often jump to conclusions and you see it often when we're trying to um, play back our research findings to our stakeholders. And finally, there's too much information out there. So when we try to remember the important bits, we have to make constant trade-offs on what we actually remember and what we forget. And these decisions inform our mental models of the world. So this afternoon, we'll explore six main themes of biases. We're gonna share our experiences identifying these biases and give some tips on how to manage them um, when you identify them in stakeholders. So the first one is confirmation bias, which is considered one of the most dangerous biases. It's the tendency to search for or interpret information in a way that confirms our beliefs. Common factors such as internal politics, personal goals, or simply a lack of knowledge can turn into a cherry picking exercise where researchers or our stakeholders may consider some results and just completely ignore others. Now, this is particularly common when we're Googling to find information. The fact that we have an idea of the information we're wanting to find means we're likely to structure our search terms around that. So, for example, if I googled, will Trump win the next election? 
I'm most likely to see the websites that may confirm this idea and less likely a general overview of the situation at hand. Now it's common as researchers that we form a hypothesis and then we test it to be true rather than looking more broadly and to test to see if that hypothesis is actually false. As humans, we're often wanting to confirm what we believe is true. So testing in this way is just going to allow our brains to grip onto what aligns with our beliefs and therefore possibly not answer the question at hand. So as James Clear explains in this diagram, we're often looking for the facts which confirm our beliefs, not viewing the overall set of facts. And again, we often come up with an idea and then we provide evidence to prove that idea rather than looking more generally. So a little bit of an example of this in a stakeholder context. I was once presenting some research findings back to a group of stakeholders. It was a project where the stakeholders were particularly passionate about the product and its success. The research we conducted was a round of 10 interviews with people who'd used the existing website. And in all honesty, the feedback that we were getting wasn't reflecting particularly well on the product. I'd frame the findings in a way that would soften the blow a little bit by making sure that following every negative finding, there was a positive finding. And in the case of these findings, the negative findings tended to be a lot more meaty and the positive findings slightly shallower. I went through and presented the findings. The negative findings came down like a ton of bricks. The research methods started to be questioned. How could we possibly trust that these findings were consistent across customers outside of the research group? Alternatively, the positive findings were celebrated with no question of the research methods or the participants. Now at the end of the presentation, the discussion was all around the positive findings as if the negative findings didn't exist. I slowly started to reintroduce the negative findings to have a bit of a discussion about how we might include them in the design going forward. Now I'm sure everyone's probably come across this situation in the past um, in varying ways. Um, where their stakeholders have questioned the research and its methods because the results don't confirm their view on the world. So how might we deal with this? Firstly, we list out our assumptions with our stakeholders. Where I currently work, we've created a research canvas, which we use when we're planning user research, which includes working as a team to list out the team's assumptions of what they believe to be true. By having this out on the table, it's easier to keep a note of them and reduce their influence on the research. Now, listing assumptions isn't just something that you do at the beginning of a project. It's also something to have that's a bit of a living list, adding to it before every round of research. Now, it's also important to take an opposing view. So this leaves you open to new evidence. So try and structure your research questions and your hypotheses from the opposing direction sometimes or decide to try and prove your hypotheses false instead. So sometimes it can be good to try and disprove rather than prove those hypotheses. Okay, the next group of biases, and, um, and forgive me if I'm not a French speaker, but I think this is how you pronounce it, is about perspective. So this one's called, I think it's pronounced defamation professionnel, which is a tendency to look at things from the point of view of one's own profession or special expertise rather from a broader humane perspective. And the one that's very closely related is the egocentric biases, which we have a tendency to rely too heavily on your own perspective. Experiences, ideas, and beliefs are much more easily recalled when they match your own, causing an egocentric outlook. So um, 
So these biases hinder people's ability to empathize with others since it causes them to focus primarily on their own emotions and to ignore others, how others feel. It's particularly important when we're dealing with our stakeholders who may not be able to empathize as clearly with our users, um, just due to the nature of what they do, their speciality. Now, we spend the majority of our time seeing things from our own perspective. So we tend to naturally examine and remember events primarily through our own personal point of view. Even when we realize that we should adjust our perspective to see things through other people's eyes, we tend to anchor this new perspective to our own and we often fail to adjust from our visual viewpoint enough to probably assess how others may feel or think about a particular situation. Now, we like this image of the six and nine, you know, showing the different perspectives. So quite a few number of years ago, I was working with an environmental organization looking at how we shift behaviors and mindsets towards lowering energy use. Our research at the time had indicated that for some types of people, getting short, sharp messages through social media was a, very, um, was a, was a way to pique interest in a particular set of tips. So we were presenting our findings back to our stakeholders. And when one stakeholder saying very dismissively, oh, that would never work. And when I asked why, she said, well, I would never use social media for that type of information. And so there you go, <laughs> example of egocentric bias. So if you're in that situation, how would you deal with it? The first way is to consider alternate viewpoints. We want to help our stakeholders keep an open mind and help them to ask a lot of whys. We want them to try to see things from somebody else's point of view, or at least try to see things from a generalized external perspective by our users. Secondly, we want to always take it back to the user needs. It's much easier having conversations around other people's about our actual user needs rather than it being an opinion-based piece. Thirdly, we want our stakeholders to be able to come with us on research sessions where possible. Now, often when I try, when I suggest this, I often get stakeholders pushing back and, oh, that's not really my job. You know, that's why we hire new researchers to do this stuff. But for every time I mentioned get those stakeholders on board, the change in attitude and mindset has been quite, um, actually, it was quite amazing. The people have gone from you know, talking about their perspective and their views to, wow, here's what our users are dealing with and here's how they're feeling. That's a really useful tip. The fourth one is to help our, um, encourage our stakeholders to use self-distancing languages. So instead of thinking about themselves or ourselves using the first person pronoun, for example, what should I do? We'll help them think about using, uh, sorry, think about themselves using a second person pronoun. For example, what should you do? Or what should John do? Or what should Michelle do? So we saw that there was a lot of similarity between three other of the biases that we thought were relevant um, in our stakeholders. So they are the irrational escalation, sunk cost fallacy and the IKEA effect that was mentioned earlier this morning. So firstly, irrational escalation is the tendency to justify increased investment in a decision. This is based on cumulative prior investment, despite new evidence suggesting that the decision was probably wrong. Similarly, the sunk cost fallacy is when a behavior is continued as a result of previously invested resources. So for example, time, money, and effort. And finally, the IKEA effect is the idea that consumers place a disproportionately high value on products they partially created, the name obviously deriving from the furniture retailer IKEA. So where we aligned this with our stakeholders was that if stakeholders had been part of the process of making something, they're more likely to feel that attachment to it. So the sunk cost fallacy is a problem most prominently found in gambling when someone is at a loss. They keep investing money with the justification that they must be getting closer and closer to winning. Now Kahneman and Tversky show the impacts of the sunk cost fallacy very clearly in this diagram. 
where A is starting from scratch and B is starting from the point that they are currently at. So as you can see, there is still the journey from get, to get from B to A before you start making those gains and adding value. So to share a bit of a story, I was working on a large scale project on a very complex platform. To use this platform, you needed to start on the company website and then move through two other platforms before returning back to the company website. So it's a little bit like what happens when you're buying a product using PayPal on eBay, where you purchase the product on eBay and then you get sent over to PayPal to make the payment before coming back to eBay. However, imagine two layers within that. It was really complex. Now we came in and started research at the beta phase of the project. In the first week, we went out and we conducted usability testing. We found that of the six participants, not a single person could get through the process end to end unassisted. We came back to the team and told them and our product manager said, oh, well, we can make all those little changes that will help with the usability, but we can't change the overall model of how the system works. We've been working on that forever. We made the small design changes, which we hoped would help to fix some of the usability issues of people not being able to get from end to end. Then we took it out for usability testing again. And again, people couldn't get through the task from end to end. They became so confused with the different layers of the system and how to navigate through them. So we did usability testing week after week, finding the same thing over and over. Each time we researched various parts of the process, but during all those weeks of research, not a single participant was able to navigate from end to end through the system. It came to a point where we did a cross analysis between research rounds to ensure that the product manager could see the massive impact that it was going to have on the usability um, of the product in the case that we pushed the product live. The product manager told us that we're under such tight deadlines and have spent way too much money and too much time to not deliver what we have. So this is a clear representation of sunk cost fallacy where delivering a product came over the user needs and the usability. So how might we be able to support our stakeholders around this? Firstly, we need to encourage our stakeholders to take a long-term view. This may include offering alternatives or giving stakeholders an understanding of the time and cost something might take to fix, which may be more than starting from scratch or pivoting. We wanna identify the value from learning from mistakes. We've all heard the phrase to fail fast. We need to encourage our stakeholders that failing fast and learning is such an important factor in successful design and not something to be scared of. And we also need to prov provide a way to pivot to a more useful pathway. So help to support our stakeholders to see a pathway away from the current situation. Over to you, Ruth. Uh, this is one of my favorite biases when it comes to stakeholders. I'm not sure how many hit the hippo problem, but uh, this bias is about the highest individually paid person's opinion. So this is about letting um, the hippo, let the personal preferences dictate whether or not something's worth trying or some content worth sharing or some program or service is worth implementing. So Vinesh Kustik, I think I pronounce it, was the first person to coin the term hippo in his book, Web Analytics in Our Day. So when the hippo is in the room and a difficult decision needs to be made, but there's no data or data analysis to determine the right course of action one way or another, the group in the, in the room will often defer to the judgment of the hippo. Now, hippos are generally the most experienced and most powerful person in the room, while organizations are generally the senior executive. Once they voice their opinion, 
any opposing views that are, are usually shut out or shut down. In some cases, particularly in organizations where people feel psychologically unsafe, people feel or just have fear speaking out against the hippo's direction, even if they disagree with it. So we should have identified two hippo scenarios. The first is the one we just described above, where the hippo makes a decision. The second one is the hippo by proxy. This is the person who works closely with the hippo and represents hippo's needs. And they feel that their job is to make the hippo happy, but don't necessarily um, continue to consult with them any further throughout the course of the project or the service or the product. Now, both are really dangerous, but the second would be even more so as you're unable to talk directly and negotiate with the hippo. So a study from Rotterdam School of Management found that projects led by senior leaders often fail, um, well, fail more often um, compared to projects led by junior managers, which were more likely to be successful. And the difference was that junior managers had the benefit of critiques to their project plans, while others um, and others helped them actually build a much stronger approach to their project. While employees felt that they couldn't quite give it some level of critique to the, um, the hippo. So hippo's opinions are often presented as a fact, but they are very subjective. And this can be particularly problematic when other plans are derailed to focus on whatever the highest paid person wants done, even if there's no research or data to back it up. And that's what I love about this particular image, right? You can present all this data and under option A and hippo goes to option B. <laughs> so not only does this change of direction increase the cost, waste time and also lower confidence um, of the team and our stakeholders, but it will also could simply be the wrong action to take. So back early in my UX career, I was working on a new digital service that had many stakeholders across this really large organization. Our design team did a lot of design work and quite a bit of research. Now we had to deal with the feedback we heard from my users and we also did a lot of expectation management and a lot of stakeholder management. It felt like everyone had an opinion and wanted their opinion expressed in this particular product. Often it felt like we were dealing with many levels of hippos in every meeting that I went into, with the danger of the work just becoming a big design by committee exercise. So when we got to the end, it just felt like this huge Herculean effort just to get to the point where we're ready for final sign-off for the very senior executive of this particular um, project. After we prepared a nice presentation, outlined our usability findings um, and the final designs that we landed with. Now, when we presented the findings to the hippo, we quickly discovered that the hippo had lots of opinion on the design ranging from the color, he didn't like the particular shade of green that we were using, the copy used on the screen, the order the screens presented, which had just changed way many, many times, you know, previously due to stakeholders and due to feedback from our research participants. And he even had an additional function he wanted to see, despite no research indicating that it was a user need. This to say, it was back to the drawing board and the project was delayed while we tried to factor in the hippo's opinions. So I wish I knew then what I knew now <laughs> um, on how to deal with it. So how to deal with it is, I think one of the main things is that we really need to understand our hippos' motivations and goals. If we can understand where, what really drives them or what's their performance metrics, if we can have the insights and the evidence base that then speaks to that. If you have the data that speaks to the highest concern of the highest paid person, it will just help to drive decisions. The second thing is to take the hippo along on the journey. We want to ensure that the hippo can attend as many research share beds and showcases. And where possible, we want to use our users' voice and stories directly so that the hippo can hear straight from them rather than thinking it's our opinion of the research analysis. Thirdly, where we can, we want to try to build cons consensus. So before heading into a meeting with, um, you know, with the hippo, we want to try to inform the larger group about the facts around, um, or we want to build consensus among your stakeholders. The more prepared and informed that our stakeholders are, and the larger the group is and have the facts on decision, the more likely that they will be the challenge the highest paid person in the room. Particularly if that person who wants to challenge has a bit of um, 
that's where a bit of um, kind of kudos with, um, um, with the hippo. So that way, challenges the hippo won't seem quite as daunting if there's evidence to support the position. And finally, we want to be able to work with the hippo's proxy or helper to communicate to the hippo and have that kind of open lines of communication. Oh, and what happens if you are the hippo of, in the room? Um, it could be likely, I mean, once you work your way up in your career, um, you could be the hippo. <laughs> if it is, we want to make sure that we're inviting disagreement. We want to create a culture where we can seek multiple opinions and dissenting opinions, and even ask someone to play the devil's advocate prior to any important decision being made. So we need to remember that the hippo's job is to help, in, to help embrace others, people's perspectives, and to try to make most of the people around them. So moving on to the curse of knowledge. So the curse of knowledge is a cognitive bias that occurs when an individual communicating with other individuals unknowingly assumes that the others have the background to understand. Now, this is the failure to understand how things affect people who don't have the knowledge we have about a particular subject. There is such a thing as being too close to an issue. And this is why independent research is necessary to identify problem areas for users of a product or service. We see this all the time in user research, particularly in websites or apps developed by engineers who are unable to put themselves in the user's shoes. And no doubt this is something that everyone can relate to. So we need to encourage our stakeholders to understand the large amounts of corporate and domain knowledge they have about a particular problem, knowledge which their customers or users often do not have. So to share a story, We'd done the right thing and invited our stakeholders along to observe usability testing sessions through a one-way mirror. One of my colleagues was doing the research and I was sitting in the observation room with a group of stakeholders. The screen on the test computer was in front of us so that we could observe, sorry, another screen, um, which relayed the screen on the test computer was in front of us so that we could observe the way that the participant was interacting with the website. Now, it was about 20 minutes into the very first session of the day. We'd learned a bit about the participant, their background, and there were two tasks in. The participant started to find this task particularly difficult. He wasn't able to navigate through the system due to some of the terminology being used. The stakeholder that was sitting next to me whispered under their breath, the button is just there, how can he not see it? I looked over. Not sure if I'd heard them correctly, but didn't want to cause a fuss. So looked back and kept observing the screen and writing up my notes. A few minutes later, the stakeholder looked over at me and said, this guy is just dumb. How can he not understand where he needs to click to find that information? I stopped and explained to the stakeholder um, that by doing research like this, we're able to understand which parts of a website are easy to use and which need to be reviewed or redesigned. And that if one participant is having issues using it, it's likely that we'll see some of the same issues come out during the day. Now, I hope you've never been put in that situation. Um, but in the case that you are, it's really important that we remind our stakeholders that research is all about learning. We want to understand the different perspectives and ways of behaving of different people. That's really why we do research in the first place. We want them to keep an open mind. So we need to ask our stakeholders to come to research with an open mind, leave their ego and judgment at the door and truly just observe what's going on in the session. And finally, we want them to practice detachment from the product, which we know can be really hard when they've sunk a lot of time, effort and money into it. But again, we're all here to learn and that's the purpose of the research. Thanks, Michelle. And the final one is hyper, the final one I was going to talk about today is hyperbolic discounting. 
This is about the choosing the long-term gain over the short-term reward. So in most people, we tend to favor an immediate reward and we discount the value of waiting. So um, back in the late 1960s, a Stanford University professor, Walter Mischko, presented a group of preschools with a plate of marshmallows. They were then told that they could either have one marshmallow now or two later. It was a really simple test to test um, the levels of instant gratification among children. So this is an example of hyperbolic discounting where you either wait and have the one and, and have two or you can't wait to have the one marshmallows. So this bias might show up when we're taking our stakeholders through our insights and where we need to make a decision about what action to take. We often get to that point in a discussion where we realize that we're never gonna have enough information to be 100% confident um, with our understanding of the complex situation or in how we're gonna make that complex decision. We often end up choosing as a result the option that just allows us just to move along, keep the ball rolling, building momentum, and to just produce something. So it's often give us the shiny thing now versus the big wins, but more valuable, give us something you know, solid later. So this focus on quick wins or instant gratification means that we might be missing out on the chance to, get, to do something and create something that's actually really amazing for our users and, and that's also aligned to our business um, strategy. So I was working on a four month long alpha phase of a particular project where we're doing research every week. Now, as you can imagine, when you conduct research every week, it means that you gather a lot of data. Now each week we'll plan, conduct, analyze, and share back our research. During our research sharebacks, we will play a bit of the background about the participants and the stories, as well as the findings around the concepts which we've been exploring with each participant. Now each round of research, the team would listen to the shareback and be really interested in the stories. From the shareback, the product manager would direct different members of the team to implement the quick, simple wins. So the quick wins findings from the research. They'll then rush off and immediately start making the changes. And these were things like making a button choice more obvious, changing a word or updating the placement of an image. And when we come around to the review of the updated prototype for the next round of research, we saw all little changes were done, but none of the larger issues which had come up the research was being addressed. Issues such as trust and security, which were the deeper insights that impacted the overall product strategy and vision and direction. And when we spoke with the product manager, they commented that the larger findings would impact the product direction too much and to just test the updates that had really been made. And this is an example of hyperbolic discounting where we needed to have quick wins to show progress versus that longer term changes that need to be made. So how would we deal with this kind of situation? Well, first of all, we have to work out how do we balance quick wins versus longer term rewards? So there's questions you can ask um, your stakeholders is uh, asking that, but you know, we seem to be really anchored in a particular short-term quick win. And how would we argue to do a longer term, longer term win instead? Now, what's stopping it in place and what are the barriers? If we can understand that, it can help us to work out strategies to um, move stuff towards a longer-term thinking. We also need to break down the longer-term rewards into smaller chunks. If we set big lofty goals because they yield very big rewards. However, big goals take a long time to achieve. And, they, and it happens far in the future. By breaking things down to smaller chunks, it means we can achieve things quicker. And it also feels like you're getting that kind of you know, gratification of completing something each week or each sprint. Um, so yeah, so by doing something small chunks, it means the reward's more guaranteed and more immediate. The third thing we want to objectively help our, um, we want our stakeholders objectively evaluate options. So what we want to do is when we write down each option or objective or idea um, and actually get everyone to evaluate it on a case-by-case -case basis, so apples to apples, for example. Now, Alassian actually has a great thing called a concept canvas, so you can grab one for free, research for it on Google, and you can use that to actually do this evaluation. 
Uh, the final one is about sharing the risk of, of not incorporating your longer term findings in the overall success of the product. So we want our stakeholders to understand um, how their preferred option um, actually aligns with the strategic goal that's aiming for. So will this option help them meet it? And if not, what will? What are, they, what are they uncertain about and what will help them with, with removing the uncertainty? So the more we can align stuff to the street, to strategic overall goals, um, that's, the more it helps us actually kind of deal with this uh, particular bias. So what are the main things to remember from all of those different biases and all of those different tips? Firstly, we want to take our stakeholders on the journey. So to start with, we want to explain the value of user research to them. We want to plan with them, so make sure that they're involved in the planning sessions um, as well as involved in the research. So inviting them to be an observer on the, in the user research. And then finally, we also want to ensure that they come to sharebacks and showcases so that they're understanding the analysed findings and insights as well. We want to understand our stakeholders' point of view, understand their goals and their motivation. What's making them tick on this project? Why are they working on this project and what do they want to get out of it? We want to offer that strategic advice aligned with user needs. So don't just give the what we found in research, also offer the how it's going to impact the project. Encourage that longer term thinking, that strategic thinking in your stakeholders. And also identify the risk of not implementing those longer term findings on the overall vision and strategy of the product. And we also want to teach our stakeholders about research. So things like disproving rather than proving our hypotheses, listing out those assumptions right at the beginning of the project and ensuring there's that living list of assumptions throughout the project um, for the whole team. And also to have that, uh, to be neutral, but have that inquisitive mindset when we go out and do user research. And one important thing to remember is that our biases are part of what makes us human. It's not that they're a bad thing. They're just something that we need to work with um, in all different areas of our life. So on that note, does anyone have any questions about anything we've presented today? Thank you both very much. That was awesome. We have a, a couple of questions already um, sent through and I think uh, others will be coming momentarily. Um, the first question is around how do you convince experts in an organisation that their perspectives are not necessarily equivalent to actual customers when you do not have the capacity to talk to both? How do you make people aware of their biases in a non-accusatory way? Oh, good question. Mm. <laughs> so when you're not able to actually do any user research and have that... Um, That's how I interpret the question, Michelle. Yes. Yep. Okay. Mm. I mean, I think even when you... It, it comes down to one of those, I guess, being a user researcher, I would say, do your very best to find out a way to do user research. Um, in any way and that way at least you have that base on which to have the conversation from otherwise it, it gets incredibly difficult um, to sort of compare one against the other um, when you don't have anything to compare with hmm. that makes sense. yeah i think based 
Oh, sorry. So I'm going to base on that as well. Sometimes, you know, if you, if you don't get a chance to do research, it's like look for opportunities where other research may have already been conducted in, in the organisation for that particular type of user that we're targeting. Um, you know, we, I think there was a talk about research repositories earlier, right? So how, how is there anything we can use and reuse that makes still sense in this particular context? Um, to start just trying to get that seed of the idea um, so people can start planting seeds around that things may not always be from our perspective as the expert. Yeah. I, I, I think there's a, a challenge there. It's certainly in some organisations where people feel as though they already have enough information themselves that being experts, mm. they don't really need to go out and ask those questions. Um, and that can certainly be challenging. We've got a, another question uh, which is a slightly different um, problem, which is do you have any suggestions for how to get more visibility and more hippos on board? Um, their challenge is that they find it difficult to get those important people in the room uh, to attend meetings in the first place. Mm. Yeah. A lot of our work is dealing with <laughs> the hippos and a lot of all the senior executives. I find what's really interesting is actually trying to understand the political landscape of how the hippos relate to each other. Um, they usually have different perspectives on the same problem and different agendas that's driving them. So what I actually do is actually a bit of a map for myself personally, just to map out who are the different hippos, um, what drives them, um, and what makes them tick, and, and how we can then, and what's our particular strategic goal that they're aligning to. And then that helps us work out which ones might be allies, which ones are not. Because what I find useful is finding the ally that you have a good relationship and using that particular allied hippo to help bring in the other hippos that may not quite be on board. And not to be able to tackle all of it at once, very hard, but it'd be just doing it in chunks. And it helps you bring slowly those people along the journey. Yeah, and I think on that note, it's, it's to be patient with it as well. It is, um, it is a really sort of slow process. Um, for example, making sure user needs are taken into account um, at that sort of executive level. But it just, yeah, you just got to celebrate all the little wins. Do you think it's? Um, are there are there ways that you would approach the challenge of? Subsequently, um, so there was a question earlier about how you uh, challenge expertise in a non-accusatory way. Um, are, there, are there ideas or do you have ideas on how you might subsequently present back findings in a way that doesn't put that person on the defensive? Mm. I'm talking about this approach I was working on um, a few years ago where we were working on trying to simplify <laughs> taxation obligations, which is a, a tricky, challenging area, and also very opinionated for lots of people. And people are very closely tied to this particular thing because they invest a lot of their lives. They're experts, they're legal experts who know this stuff inside out. Though I, I must admit, it took me weeks to get this particular person across the fence with this one because um, the stakeholder was just, you know, they weren't an expert. They lived and breathed this stuff for years, 20 years, that so they knew this stuff inside out. I managed to convince this person just to give me one shot and to come out with me on a particular session. Um, so I wasn't trying to say no, I'm trying to say she was wrong or anything. I was just, just come out, I was going to do a bit of observation. I just want to just have a listen. So she came out to one session. Was, you know, was, was interested, but wasn't quite convinced yet. She came and she goes, well, let me do another one more session with me. I go, okay, excellent, let's do that. She did a second session, then by the time she, then she asked to do a third one. And by then she had totally changed her perspective from this whole, um, you know, that people are trying to attack me and the, the way that the legal profession deals with this kind of thing to, oh, this absolutely does not make any sense. 
Um, so that was kind of us, my soft and softly approach was, and it took time, I think that was over a two or three week period um, to get her to come along. Um, and it was resistance after resistance to try to for this to happen. But now she's actually one of our biggest um, advocate in the legal space around how we bring, bring more user research into that particular field. So that's one method. <laughs> yep. Um, uh, Benson sent through a question. He said, there's a knowledge bias on our side as researchers, expecting others to recognize and know these biases. How can we advocate mm -hmm. and educate to self-check and manage these biases? Mm. Yes, um, those hindsight biases. Yeah, the whole, um, the, knowing our own biases is hard, right? Because we naturally <laughs> look for, for, I think, flaws in others. Um, one of the things that we practice is self-reflection. Uh, self-reflection, whether, I think people are familiar with doing retros, which is a form of self-reflection. I like to do it personally for myself after each kind of engagement to help work out what did I, how did I go with that? And do it with people that I trust as well to help identify my biases. So, because um, I know I kind of see my own, my own faults very well, but if somebody else can help me do that in this in a safe, psychological safe place, it's a really good chance for all of us to grow, change, and open our mindset. How about you, Michelle? Yeah, I think as well, at the beginning of a lot of our projects, we try and do a bit of a kickoff, and I could see that there's a really great opportunity to start talking about biases and um, starting to inform people of the different types of biases um, at that point right at the beginning of a project and that way there's that sort of interest and curiosity in them as we step through the pro project and they're able to have those points of self-reflection at different times. That's great. Thank you both very much for joining us and sharing that with us this afternoon. Really appreciate it. Thanks Dave. Thanks, Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks, guys.